0: Brothers and sisters, once again, we come to this passage of God's Word. Revelation chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. And then in chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. And we should remember as we're reading this that uh, at the very beginning of this book, uh, Jesus describes this as a revelation that has come to him. So beginning in chapter 4 at verse 8. was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever they cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created then in chapter 5 beginning at verse 8 and when he had taken the scroll and they shall reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come to your word. As we come to what Christ has revealed to us, his church, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be the one guiding us and leading us and enabling us to understand the things that are here written. And we pray that even if we cannot understand every aspect of this most amazing revelation that you've given to the church, that by your spirit, we would understand those things most necessary. And most pertinent for us to be conformed to the image of Christ and conform to your purposes for us. This we would pray. We know that your scriptures not only declare to us your truth. We know that your scriptures not only command to us the ways in which we ought to obey. But we know that your scriptures are performative in their power to work in us all of those things that are pleasing to you. That you transform us by the renewing of your minds. You enable us by your word and spirit to understand your will. Those things that are perfect in your sight. Those things which we ought to pursue with our whole hearts. And so this is what we would pray. That you would enable us to not so much master your word as that your revealed truth, your word, would master us. We place ourselves under the authority of Scripture, even as we listen to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to reflect upon the past um, seven months since January, and on the fact that our our theme all the way through this has been the theme of worship. We've essentially taken John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth as our kind of a guiding statement, uh, that which has been the anchor point for everything that we've said over the past uh, number of months. And in that particular passage, Jesus is pointing out that God is intending something very specific here. Uh, Jesus told the woman at the well that there are certain kind of people that God is seeking. Uh, It's those people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's those people that Christ came, uh, that the redemption of Christ came to make people into that kind of people, that the redemption is intended to create in us those kinds of persons who would worship God correctly in spirit and in truth. Uh, So we can look at the redemption, we can look at the cross, we can look at the work of Christ and say, clearly, uh, God has designed this to... A a restoration, a a restoration of of us to be faithful worshipers of God. That's his purpose, clearly. But we should also say that this idea of worship as glorifying God as our chief end, as our chief purpose, is at the very heart of the biblical understanding of God's design for the human beings that he's created in his own image. That's really what the Shorter Catechism is stating. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But the question I want us to consider this morning is, why is this the best purpose for us? Why is this the best for us that we would not simply be saved and be granted everlasting life and granted a life free from death and free from worry and free from pain and free from sin everlastingly in the presence of God. Why is the very idea and activity and function of worship, why is the worship of God our highest purpose for living? Why is that God's best for us? Now I ask that question because the most common idea among non-Christian people, uh, even among those who would say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm a very spiritual person. Uh, uh, among non Christian people of, of all ilk, all sorts, there's this idea that Christian worship, as they understand it, is not really about our best interests at all. And I think that's because in their minds, the idea of a genuine personal happiness, that which is most fulfilling and purposeful in the human life, uh, is not connected to the idea of the worship of God at all. It's, in fact, it's not something that really fits. But what I fear is that even among many Christians, among many churchgoers, there's a similar kind of problem. And that's why we need to ask and answer this question. Why is worship the best purpose? Why is worship the highest purpose that God could design us Now, in attempting to answer that, uh, I want to make this statement to be the statement I want us to come to agree with. I believe it's a biblical statement. It's a statement I want to see as we look at the passages we're going to be considering today. But it's essentially this. The happiness that God has designed for us is centered in God above all else. Now, that statement is truly a a reflection and a reminder of the Shorter Catechism because the Shorter Catechism, the very first question and answer, connects the worship purpose with the human purpose and the human happiness concern. Man's chief end is to worship God, to glorify God, to give God all the glory and to enjoy him forever in that Purpose. And the enjoyment idea is the human happiness concern. God's best purpose for us, focused on God himself, includes our true human happiness. Now, to arrive at this conclusion, I want us to consider three particular truths that come out of Scripture generally, but are also anchored in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. The first would be this, that it's the Bible that defines worship and not man. That's very, very important. We'll say more about that, of course. Secondly, the Bible demonstrates that worship is the best purpose for us. And then thirdly, the Bible gives practical wisdom for how and why it is the best. So I want to begin with this first idea that it's the Bible that defines worship and not man well why do i need to say that well it has a lot to do with the american cultural understanding of worship especially eternal worship you know that worship that's associated with heaven and the afterlife where the picture in american culture is often uh insipid and boring Uh, what's often pictured is is human beings sitting around upon clouds uh strumming their harps uh, singing hymns and worship songs forever and not much else. Um, which is probably why the contemporary Christian worship music uh, focused on removing uh, boringness from worship services. So in contemporary American Christianity, what we see and hear a lot about worship experiences is that they're evaluated by this kind of a standard how did i feel what did i get out of it that is in essence good worship is defined by how good the experience was for the church audience uh, the worshipers so you hear things like this well i felt uplifted i was moved to feel closer to god i could feel the spirit The message made an impact on me. The whole service changed my day. The music really changed my mood. And all sorts of other statements that I'm sure that you've heard from time to time. And yet, in the midst of all of this, some have noted with great concern that it looks like the American evangelical worshiping culture has been worshiping its experience of worship rather than God. Or to put it better, they have been worshiping what they think is the worship of God rather than God himself. And all of this is to note and all of this is to say that considering worship this way, judging worship this way, is very man-centered. It's really worship that's created by man, for man, and then focuses upon man. It's not worship that's Truly and ultimately and actually focused upon God. So when we define worship and practice worship and evaluate worship in this way, we need to perceive that this is a very man-centered understanding of worship. We're focused on what we the worshipers get out of the experience rather than upon what we in worship give to God. Now, the truth countering this is that the Bible defines worship, not man. And the Bible's definition of worship always centers upon God, ultimately, as its highest concern. So what does the Bible mean by worship? For the most part, instead of ever giving us what we might call a dictionary definition or idea, uh, the Bible defines most things but especially worship, by showing us, by giving us examples, by presenting to us certain practices, and then sometimes by telling us, declaring to us certain things. And so for this question of what it is to worship, we should think about what the Bible shows us. We should look for a good example, such as our own call to worship today from Psalm 96, seven through nine. That shows us what worship is and what it looks like for God to be worshipped. Uh, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe for the of glory, the glory that's due unto his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Now, There's a lot that's going on in those three verses, but the most essential idea that's illustrated would be this. It's giving to God the glory that is due to his name, that is due to the person that God truly is. Now, that's the reason why Jesus gives us Revelation 4 and 5, so that we can give to God the glory in terms of the person that God truly is. Because in those two chapters, Christ reveals to us that God is truly the creator of all things. And God is truly the incarnate redeemer. And those chapters show us what it means to give God all of the glory, all of the time, all honor, and all praise that God fully deserves. But these chapters also show Uh, that there's activities connected to worship and that we were created for these activities. Out of the fallen condition, we have been redeemed under these activities so that we might be those beings who give God all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise, all of that which he so richly deserves. But we could also say, secondly, that in order to keep worship focused upon God, The Bible defines essential boundary lines. Uh, Like chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, we have Christ in John chapter 4 telling us about worship boundary lines. Let's let's read this passage that is actually quite significant that we looked at really some months ago. John chapter 4, 21 to 24, Jesus says to her, the woman at the well, woman, believe me. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the boundary lines for true and authentic worship, what true worshipers will do is this. They will worship God in spirit and in truth. So with respect to in spirit, and this is review, and I know this is review for you, but it it doesn't hurt us at all to once again remind ourselves of what these boundary lines are. In spirit, the first boundary line means worshiping God in spirit is worshiping God because we have been born again by the spirit. We are new creatures in Christ. We possess new life in Christ, and we are indwelt by the spirit. That's what it means to worship him in spirit. We have to be that kind of person with that kind of renewed nature. But also it includes in truth, and that means according to God's revealed truth not our own vain speculations or imaginations, according to God's revealed truth, not according to human ideas or any of our supposed wisdom. So what we mean here, or what this means here, is that worship has these boundary lines, and these boundary lines are defined for us by God in scripture and spirit and in truth. But then we could say thirdly, the Bible gives further definition by giving us many examples that reveal the very concrete activities of what worship actually is. Now, we're all very familiar with these. Uh, They are actually shown to us in different ways in Revelation 4 and 5, but we have also noted these concrete functions of worship, these activities from the rest of scriptures. In fact, that's what we've been doing since January, primarily looking at the psalms but often going beyond the psalms so you know concrete activities of worship well it begins with adoration you know the giving to god of all of the glory that is due unto his name it's praises him praisings of god it's singing to god it's praying to god uh, the parallel passage to what we read in colossians uh, about giving thanks to god and so forth ephesians 5 19 and 20 says this, that we are to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, in fact, probably what we most think of when we think of worshiping God, the giving to God of adoration and praise, giving glory to God. But we also know that confession is an essential part of worship, confessing unto God that we have this need for God's Saving grace that he's given to us in Christ. I mean, the the call often in in the Psalms is, God have mercy upon me. Have mercy unto me, a sinner. And we know that Christ is the only one who can atone for that sin. All of the ritual of the Old Testament, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all designed to reflect this great need that we have in order to be reconciled to God. All uh, types and shadows and symbols of Christ who was to come and to give himself, to reconcile us to God, confession. But then thanksgiving. uh, We are told to come into his courts, the courts of God, with thanksgiving. And scripture reminds us that we thank God for who he is as the creator. We thank God with so much gratitude for who he is as our redeemer. But we also thank God constantly for his providences that rule over our lives. God is constantly taking care of us as our provider. We give him thanks for this. We also know the function of supplication. We know that so many of the prayers in the Psalms are, God help me kinds of prayers. Because our petitions, our supplications, our intercessions for one another are all predicated on the truth and the reality that we are dependent creatures. And it honors God to be dependent upon him. It honors him as our shepherd. It honors him as our father and protector and provider. It honors God as being almighty. It honors God as being all seeing, all knowing. And it honors God as the God who is all and completely good in every way and all the time. We also know that scripture teaches us that instruction is an essential part of our worship of God because there, an instruction, when we place ourselves under the authority of the word of God, we are giving God worship as our teacher. Uh, It's like it says in Psalm 119, uh, beginning at verse 33, reading this, Teach me, O God, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law, And observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. It's a worship of God to sit under his word as that which has authority over us. It honors him as the one who instructs us in terms of his whole counsel, it honors Christ in terms of being obedient, as the Great Commission reminds us that we are to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Now, one of the items of worship that we've not actually broken out and emphasized during this time has been what we can call covenant vows. And yet, on a monthly basis, Providence Church has, in fact, Worshiped this way by virtue of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Both Lord's Supper and baptism are are covenant signs, and they are done in the context of the worship of God. Because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate baptism, we are, in fact, recognizing all that God has done for us as the Redeemer, as Christ is the one who has inaugurated and, and instituted the new covenant. That has reconciled us to God. And we pledge ourselves in a worshipful, covenantal manner once again to God. And then finally, benediction. Uh, we, We worship God through his benediction. That is the final words of a worship service is that where God places his blessing upon us as we go forth to serve him. I will be considering that in our message next Sunday. But all of this to say, with respect to the first point, the place we have to start is with the biblical definition of worship, not man's thinking, because true worship is centered in and upon God. Now, that enables us then to consider our second point, and that is this. The Bible demonstrates that worship is the best purpose for us. That is to say, worship is not just for the sake of God, but it's also for our sake, too. Or another way of putting this would be to state it this way. God does not please himself in any manner that limits his goodness to his image bearers. And again, God does not please or glorify himself or or command all that is right in terms of worship of him, God doesn't please himself in all of these ways in any manner that in any sense limits his goodness toward his image bearers. Or to say it this way, what is most necessary unto God is likewise what is the very best for us His image bearers. Now, here are three biblical demonstrations that this is so. First, worship is the most perfect thing that perfect beings do. And I'm talking about the unfallen, holy, angelic, heavenly host. Now think about this. If it's God's eternal purpose for these angelic creatures, the greatest of all created beings, who are much greater than we are, if it's God's eternal and perfect purpose for them, if God created them to worship him unceasingly, then how much more so for us? If this is God's purpose for his greatest creations, then how much more uh, creating us for worship would be the best purpose for us? Now, so the text here, Revelation 5 11 through 14, where we see this illustrated for us. John writes, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders found, fell down to worship. So we see that the, the most perfect of all created beings are wonderfully designed to worship God as their essential purpose. And if God is good. And if God's designs are good, it is the best purpose and design for his angelic host to be designed to worship God. Now, second argument. We can say this. um, We know it's the best. We know that worship is the best purpose for us. Because the redeemed, those who are already redeemed, are already doing so. We see this given to us in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. We read in that chapter, again, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, of people, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, this passage shows us what the redeemed are now doing before the throne of God. And they are worshiping him. And if God is good, then this must be the best purpose for the redeemed who are already in God's presence in heaven. And then thirdly. Christ died to recreate us as those who would worship. We see this in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you purchased people for God from every tribe and language of people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign upon the earth. Now, the idea of the redeemed becoming priests to our God is a way of expressing this transformation by the redemption of Christ. The phrase itself is anchored uh, in the Old Testament uh, worship approach. You see, of all the people of Israel, the priests were those who were most called, most purposed, and most defined as full-time servants and full-time worshipers of God. That is to say, their whole lives, uh, identity and purpose, all that they are, all that they were, all that they did, was focused upon the worship of God. And so we can sum, all that, sum this all up and say it this way. If, if God's most perfect creation, the angelic beings who never fell, were created to be essentially worshipers. And if those who are already in heaven, the redeemed, are worshipers, and if the lamb was slain to purchase people, to redeem them in order to be worshipers, then it must be the case that the best purpose for us is to be what God created and redeemed us to be, his worshipers, and to be able to say, truly our chief end, our chief purpose, is to glorify God. And this is the best. But finally, the Bible also gives us the practical wisdom side of this for how and why it is the best purpose for us. Because the Bible shows us that God has a concern for human happiness, and that human happiness is necessarily tied into our true purpose. But as with every human concern in a fallen world, God's view and definition of human happiness is not the same as the world's view. Now, with respect to the idea of happiness, uh, the wisdom of the world almost always concludes that whatever is the purpose of human beings Human happiness is going to be a vital part. Now, that is a valid and truthful observation from general revelation. It it didn't take the scriptures to make that point that whatever is the essential purpose of human beings, human happiness must be a vital part of it. Our purpose as human beings and our true happiness as human beings must go together. So we could say this, that the world's ideas about happiness are not off the mark in a general kind of way, which is to say that the most sophisticated studies of human happiness, going back to Aristotle's entire book of ethics, uh, generally describe happiness as a condition or as a feeling or both that embraces a sense of Satisfaction and contentment and fulfillment and often the emotion of joy. And this definition is connected to the idea of human purpose. That is, whatever human beings try in order to answer the question, what is the purpose of my life, they take aim at what they think will move them toward happiness, a sense of satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment. Now, let's step back and give this some biblical perspective. You see, we actually see this approach, this worldly approach, demonstrated in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we have this pilgrimage described where Solomon pursues all of the good things of life seeking to find a purpose in achieving the good things of life. And so he aims his efforts toward wisdom, or toward work, or toward wealth, but also toward pleasure in terms of wine and women. In this pursuit, he seeks to have or to find happiness, that is to say, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of contentment, a sense of fulfillment. But Solomon finds that none of these is ever anything ultimately but a heavy burden. Life lived this way. Life pursuing all of these earthly purposes misses happiness completely. And it winds up being a pursuit that Solomon calls vanity of vanities or the emptiness of all emptiness. And that's why the conclusion of Solomon's pilgrimage, chapter 12, begins this way. Remember also your creator in the days of a youth, because if God is our creator, then there is no human purpose or human happiness, ultimately, in any kind of ultimate sense, apart from God. Now, in contrast to the world then, The Bible has its own perspective and definition and understanding of human happiness. It is the idea that inside of God's favor, we can be related to God and live a life that is ultimately fulfilling and meaningful and significant and purposeful. But outside of God's favor, we can only seek for happiness that has a very finite and temporal and very circumstantial Uh, kind of approach where the reference is primarily toward ourselves and these pursuits for most people are never quite enough but most people pursuing worldly purposes and happiness find themselves left empty and especially for Christians who actually know God but pursue something else for happiness that is not focused upon God. Now, truthfully, there are unbelievers who do find a sense of fulfillment in this life. There are happy unbelievers. The devil must have it so, or the true vanity and emptiness of worldly happiness would then begin cause unbelievers to seek something more. So there is a smattering of happy non-believers. The devil wants them to be happy. The devil wants worldly people to think that they too can be happy. Apart from having a life that is intimately connected with God. But again, the contrast is this. The biblical conception of happiness is defined with reference to God. And it is found in the idea of blessedness. It is the idea of being on the inside of God's favor, living rightly toward God, having the experiences of a God-centered life and its goodness, and being able to say, taste and see that the Lord is good. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, King David describes this kind of life in a relationship with God in Psalm 18, the first three verses. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be saved and I am who's worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. He describes it in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. verse For Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. He is God, it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The idea of blessedness runs all the way through these psalms. They described what the God-centered life is like. And the aim of this kind of life is Godward. It is purposefully Godward. And this God-centered life, this Christ-centered life, uh, consistently expresses itself in worship and praise and God. And the motivation behind this, the motivation in the life of a believer, is always because of who God is and what God has done for us. To repeat, Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. God is praised as our creator. It is he who has made us. And God is praised for what he has done for us. He is our redeemer. Out of his steadfast love, he has made us to be his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, if we know these things, if we truly believe these things, then we will see and experience this great truth. That the happiness that God has designed for us, both now and forevermore, is centered in God in his son, the Lord Jesus, above all else know, we'll be convinced that God created us and redeemed us for worship in order to give God himself all of the glory, and we will be satisfied that this is the best purpose of all. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, uh, may it be so. May the truth of your word work in us completely, deeply, and in every way that we would be able to say to live as Christ, to die as gain, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord, to join all of those who are uh, the glorified saints made perfect and sing in worthy is the lamb who is slain. Worthy is the Lord Jesus to receive all blessing and honor and glory and power and dominion. All praise to the one who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. That we would ascribe unto the name of our God the glory that is due to his name. That we would willingly, gladly be among those where every knee bows. And every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know what it is to worship you. We have taste and seen, oh Father, that you are good. That you are good all the time. And what you have purposed and designed and created us and redeemed us to be is very, very good we bless you and we thank you for it in your son's name amen